Actually, I'm very committed to using it someday. (laughs) Right now, my commitment is actually watching the commercials on TV. I'm committed to watching the commercials for it. Many of you know that Jonathan Edwards was a very committed believer. And somewhere around the early 1700s, I believe it was 1722 to 1723, Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest theologians this nation has ever produced, wrote what he called the resolutions. And he wrote 70 of them. He was a wordy guy. So he wrote 70 resolutions. But what what most of you don't know is that Martin Luther also wrote some resolutions. A couple hundred years before Jonathan Edwards, Martin Luther wrote resolutions. Two of them. My kind of guy. A man of few words. But he said, resolved, number one, that every man should live to the glory of God. Resolved, second, that whether others do this or not, I will. I think that speaks of commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are here today because of the tremendous commitment of other believers to the gospel and to Jesus Christ. We stand on the shoulders of great men. We are there, in a sense, disciples. And I often wonder, who's going to be behind us? What will our disciples look like 400 years from now? Will we have done our job? Will we have passed on the faith? I think that's a good question for us to ask ourselves this morning. As the year comes to another close and another year stretches before us, I think we need to ask ourselves a question this morning as to what is our commitment to Jesus Christ like? What is our commitment like? Have you evaluated it? I think this morning is a good morning to do that. And I'm going to have you turn to Luke if you're not there already, Luke 9, 57 to 62. Pastor David spoke to you last week about keeping the main thing the main thing. And I was thinking as I was sitting in the congregation there, I was forming my own sermon while he was preaching. And it just, call it inspired, whatever, I don't know. God spoke to me audibly. I don't know if the rest of you heard it or not. But I was sitting right, no, I'm just kidding. But this passage comes prior to what David was preaching on. And so I thought this would be a good test, if you will, of dedication to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own, to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Let me just give you a little background on this passage. You see this phrase here as they were going along the road. This constitutes what we know as to be Luke's travelogue. 
This is Luke's travelogue. So, so Jesus has, remember, if you'll just remember your little bit of Bible history here, Jesus has been kicked out of Nazareth, his hometown. He has voluntarily, voluntarily left Capernaum, and he is now heading towards Jerusalem in the last few months of his ministry here. He is heading down to Jerusalem on the road uh, through Samaria, and he has just been, if I could jokingly say, summarily, summarily rejected by the Samaritans. He has been rejected by them, and so now his face is set like flint to go to Jerusalem and to die. He will suffer at the hands of men, and he will be put to death. And so anybody tagging along with him now, in a sense, is following him right into a death trap. They're following him right into a death trap. So this phrase, we, we see it over and over again here. We see it in uh, Luke 9:51 to 19:27. really forms this whole big cluster of Luke's travelogue. But we see these statements here in 9:53. He was traveling toward Jerusalem. We see it again in 13:22. We see it again in 17:11. He's on his way to Jerusalem to die. And this is his swan song, if you will. So the reason I tell you all that, I tell you all that to say that these three excuses, these three little vignettes here, they come at a time when Jesus' public rejection has reached a pinnacle. He is, he is being rejected left and right by everybody. And so this ongoing rejection and his imminent crucifixion is at hand. And so the stakes have been anteed, if you will. He's up the ante. I won't go here, but Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 22 covers two of these little vignettes as well. It's the same thing over there. What I'm going to do with you this morning, as you see on your handout there, is Jesus is going to show us from this passage here three, he's going to invalidate, if you will, three flimsy excuses for not following him. He's going to invalidate three flimsy excuses for not following him. And we're going to do that this morning so that he might gain nothing less than complete devotion from us. Beloved, we need to be devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that as we go through this passage, it will only increase our love and our affection for Jesus Christ. So the first of these flimsy excuses there, I left you some fill in the blanks so you wouldn't fall asleep. But loss of fame. Loss of fame, if you want to write that down. Page 1034 in your pew Bibles, if, if you're not there. This first flimsy excuse, he says, as they, were, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So if one is seeking fame, following Christ is the wrong place to find it. I guess that's the point. One will only find rejection if they want to sign up for this tour of duty. So this guy says, I will follow you wherever you go. And the text says someone asked him this question. And if we look over at Matthew, we find out it's a scribe. A scribe is asking this question. And this is this verb here about going with him. It's it's wherever you may go is the idea. It's wherever you may go. And it's this person is, in a sense, bragging. They are bragging that no matter where Jesus is going, no matter where you're headed, Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere. And Jesus says, really? You have no idea, do you? You are clueless. 
Interestingly, the scribe is the one initiating the conversation. And it's just the, the arrogance is almost palpable, isn't it? You have, you have no idea where Jesus is going. He's been rejected everywhere he's gone. And you're saying you're going to follow him? Really? And in light of what we said earlier, he's about to go to Jerusalem to be rejected, to suffer at the hands of the Jewish leadership, to, to be crucified, and to be buried very, very soon. It sounds familiar. You remember Peter's bold confession in John 13? He said, why don't you turn there? John 13, 37. Back up to verse 36 of John 13 here. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Three times before this night is over, Mr. Big Shot, you think you're going to follow me everywhere? By the time we get to morning, you will have rejected me three times already. So even the super apostle, even the preeminent apostle, is going to, if I can say it this way, peter out at the end. You'll get it later. Just hang with me. But notice in all of these questions, all of these offers, if you will, Jesus has the last word in every single one of them. Everybody in the first one, the guy offers, Jesus gives him a response. In the second one, The guy offers, but he gives an excuse. Jesus responds. And the third one, the guy offers and gives an excuse, and Jesus responds. Jesus always has the last word. And notice here in verse 58, he says, The foxes have holes. Here's his response. The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And grammatically speaking, all three of these share that last little phrase, to lay his head. So what do I mean by that? Well, look at it again with me. The foxes have holes to lay their head in. The birds have nests to lay their head in. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That's the point. And the idea here is, uh, literally the text says the birds of heaven. And I, I wouldn't make a big deal out of that normally, but the foxes are wild and the birds are wild birds. And so the point here is that these are creatures that in a sense live vagabond lifestyles they're always on the move they're always roaming Uh, and even they when jesus compares himself to them he says even they are better off than i am at least they have a little nest or they have a hole in the ground they have something i don't have anywhere i've been rejected in my hometown i've been rejected in capernaum i'm rejected even by the half jews gentiles samaritans nobody wants me And I'm about to go to Jerusalem. And believe me, they don't want me either. You really want to sign up for this? Climb on board. You have no grasp of the rejection that you would be facing if you were to follow me. You will give up literally everything. You will live and die in obscurity. Jesus hits us and this person 
I think, right where we're most vulnerable. Right where we are most vulnerable. Do you want to be famous? Do you want to be part of Messiah's ministry? Are you ready to give up your comfort? Are you ready to give up your comfort? You know, look back at the text with me. By the way, this man didn't respond back to Jesus. As I said, Jesus had the last word here. But the text doesn't indicate that the man followed him either. So he didn't take the challenge. Everywhere else where we get this sort of dialogue, it says that the person followed him. They followed him. Go back to Matthew, if you will, real quick. Matthew 4. Verses 18 here to 25. This is the call of the disciples here. And he says, Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him spread throughout all Syria, And they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So what's the point? When Jesus calls, they drop everything and they follow him. You've got... You've got Peter and Andrew out in a fishing boat, fishing for a living. This is what they do for a living. And they drop their nets, and they follow Jesus. You see the second calling here, right? James and John. They leave their father and their boat, and they follow Jesus immediately. Notice in both cases it says, immediately. That's what Jesus is calling people to. So if you want fame, you're not going to find it in following Jesus. You're not going to be a famous person. You will live and die in obscurity. Which really, I think, is counterculture, right? We watch television, most of us in the room, and what do we see more than anything else on television now? Reality shows, right? Everybody wants their 15 minutes of fame. Andy Warhol was the one that said that, by the way. He said everybody sooner or later would be famous for 15 minutes in their life. So what drives people now is these reality shows. They want to be famous. But following Christ doesn't mean fame. It means he gets the glory. He gets the fame. We follow him for his name's sake, not for ours. And that's a high calling. Fame and comfort go hand in hand. I guess that's why I say this, because this cuts right to our heart. This man wants comfort, and Jesus knows what lies beyond comfort. 
Fame, fame brings comfort. And Jesus is saying, you're not going to find it with me. The gospel is a scandal, remember? The gospel is a scandal. It's, there's no fame attached to it. But the rewards are immeasurable to those who find life in it. The second flimsy excuse, look back at the text with me, verses 59 to 60. is a loss of fortune. It says, and he said to another, follow me. But he, literally this one, said to him, permit me first to go and bury my father. And this is probably another scribe. Most people will agree with that. And this appeal this time was initiated by Jesus. This time, it's not the guy bragging. This time he looks at the other guy and says, Hey, why don't you follow me? And this guy, like a terrorist, is holding his allegiance hostage until certain demands are met. So he says, I'll follow you, but let me tell you what it's going to cost you, what my allegiance is going to cost you. And Jesus says, really? Let me tell you what it's going to cost you. As I said, there's a there's a parallel account over in Matthew 8, 21 to 22. And you know, when I first read this one, I thought, well, this, this seems a little overkill, doesn't it? His response to him, uh, allow the dead to bury their own dead. <laughs> that seems a little harsh, doesn't it? Jesus is lacking sensitivity here. Shouldn't I honor my father? Shouldn't I make sure my father is buried properly? It seems like that's not all that invalid an excuse. But it is. The problem is that this man's father was probably not even dead yet. He, he probably wasn't dead. In reality, this man's father was probably alive and well. This, this phrase, let me go and bury my father, was a, a common expression or a figure of speech in the Hebrew culture in the first century. And it usually meant... Let me wait around till I get my inheritance, and then I'll follow you. What, it, what he is probably saying here is, I don't want to give up the family fortune and go and follow you. Remember what we just saw with the other disciples. They left their father, and they left their nets, and they left their boats, and they went immediately. So this man is saying, listen, my father's getting older every day. And so in order to follow you around, I'm going to have to sort of traipse all over the countryside and risk losing my inheritance, I think you could wait a year, Jesus. Uh, you know, hold on for a few. Let me, let me go and take care of some family business here first. And I'll be back. Now, it is true in the, in the Jewish culture in the first century, sons were supposed to wait around and see to it that their fathers were buried properly. However, the point here is that Jesus is recognizing this to be one of his, quote, casual disciples. This is one of the, the Klingons, if you will. He's a Klingon. He's a groupie. He's a guy that's just sort of following Jesus around, but he's not really serious about it. One guy said he's a, he's a casual disciple of whom there are always too many. So, so Jesus... He kind of knew that the scribes were, were masters at giving these plausible-sounding excuses for not following him. So he, 
he directly confronts him in this. And he says, listen, I know who you are. I know what you are, right? You're, you're an inactive disciple. You are a bench warmer. You are somebody who says they're on the team, but they have no activity. And this scribe is just using his aged father as an excuse for not giving Christ the fullest measure of his devotion. It's an excuse. Interestingly, I won't turn you there. You can cross-reference this later. It's a long passage. I don't have time to read it. But Genesis 50, 1-14, if you look at that text, the, the verbiage is almost identical to this. The verbiage is almost identical. So, so in other words, the scribe knew his Old Testament, and he's pulling this story forward, and he's saying, hey, I have a biblical excuse here for not following you completely. This is biblical. This is what Joseph did. He went and buried his father, Jacob. And he took off for a little while, and he came back to Pharaoh. It's biblical. But Jesus' response, I think, kind of clarifies the air. He says, allow the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Shocking, shocking statement. Let the dead go and bury their own dead. So we have a little bit of a paradox here, don't we? How how does that happen? How do dead people bury other dead people? Dead people don't do anything, do they? They don't breathe. They don't walk. They don't talk. Dead people don't do anything. So there's three options here, and I'll give them to you, and you can tell me which one you like best. Recent archaeological discoveries in the, in the Jewish culture here in the last 100 years or so have found that in Jerusalem, from about 20 B.C. to about 70 A.D., what they would do is they would take, they would reinter the bones. So when somebody died, they would take, they would wait till the flesh rotted off the bones, and then it was the son's responsibility to go and get the bones and put them in an ossuary. And so he was perhaps saying, I need about a year, if his father were dead, to wait around for my father's flesh to melt off his bones so I can put his bones in a box, and then I'll follow you. So either way, uh, Jesus is rebuking him for potentially waiting around for as much as a year anyway. Remember, the other disciples left their father. Remember? The second possibility is that it could mean, uh, metaphorically, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Let those who are, Ephesians 2, dead in their transgressions and their sins, let them bury their own dead. Uh, Follow me. The kingdom priority here is what he's talking about. Third possibility, it could just be shock factor. could just be shock factor. I lean towards the second option, that he is speaking metaphorically of the spiritually dead. But whatever conclusion you come to, I think the reality is that the priority should be preaching the gospel of the kingdom, right? It doesn't matter why you're waiting around. The reality is that the priority is preaching the kingdom. One writer said this. He said, Many a would-be follower of Jesus has pleaded the requirements of social obligation or other prior business demands 
as an excuse for not meeting the imperative of obedience. And I would say Jesus rejects all such excuses. The call of Matthew is instructive at this point. I think you should turn back there. Turn to Matthew 9.9, if you will. Matthew 9.9. It says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and he followed him doesn't say he went and took care of his money. He put it in some CDs to make sure it was protected. He just got up. He left the money, and he followed him. And interestingly, look at verse 10. And then it happened as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house. Behold, don't miss that behold there. Many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. What's the point? Well, you give a mouse a cookie right? And he's going to come back and he's going to bring his other vice friends, right? So, so Matthew found the gospel. He found that pearl of great price. He left it and he went and told everybody he knew, all the other tax gatherers and sinners, and they came with him to meet Jesus. The man was forever changed. By the way, Luke 10, this is an exegetical observation here. Luke 10 falls right on the heels of Luke 9. Okay? What do I mean by that? Well, Luke 10, the 70 are sent, right? Now, after this, the Lord appointed 70 others. And again, the text doesn't tell us this person followed Jesus. So the point here is this person's lack of commitment cost them perhaps participation in the sending of the 70. They could have been one of those 70 if they would have followed in obedience. If you're serious about following me, Jesus says, have I got a job for you? Have I got a job for you? Flimsy excuses. What I mean by flimsy, I guess, is not that they're necessarily invalid, but they don't stand up to the call of Christ. Nothing, nothing in this world will stand up to the call of Christ. There is nothing more important than the call of Christ. So flimsy excuses, the loss of fame, the loss of fortune. Finally, the loss of family. The loss of family. This is a hard one, huh? This one hits us right where we live. Verses 61 to 62 here. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Here we got another first, huh? But first, let me go do this. Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So this again is probably actually a third scribe. The reason I say that is because this is another story ripped out of your Old Testament. I'll show you that in just a minute. But here again, we have another uh, quid pro quo, another proviso. Uh, Just let me go take care of uh, saying goodbye to my family first before I go. This word uh, saying goodbye here, it's 
it literally carries the idea of separating yourself from the ranks. What does that mean? It means he wants to go home and he wants to cut the cord. He wants to cut ties with the family before he goes off and says goodbye to all family and friends. On the, on the surface, as I said, it actually seems reasonable. Seems like a reasonable request, doesn't it? But if this man is a scribe and he does know his Old Testament, then what he is citing here is 1 Kings 19, verses 19 to 21. Why don't you turn there and I will show you what I am talking about. 1 Kings 19. Verses 19 to 21. Now this is the point where Elijah is on the run. Right? Jezebel has Elijah on the run. And so this is the passing of the prophetic mantle from Elijah to Elisha. And so you get to verse 19, and it says, So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with twelve pair of oxen before him, and he with the, and he with the twelfth. And Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle on him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and mother, then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? So he returned from following him and took a pair of the oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. Another biblical excuse. Another biblical reason for not following. Hey, if I'm going to follow, if you're a prophet and I'm going to follow you as your disciple, I'm going to whip out this excuse here just like Elisha did with Elijah. And it's biblical. I don't have to follow you now. I can follow you a year from now. Let me go home and say goodbye to my parents, and then I will follow you. And so Jesus says, listen, verse 62, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. The prophetic call to follow me is higher than that of the Old Testament prophets even. Don't think for one minute that that excuse is going to fly. If you are more concerned about your family ties, that is the idea of looking back, it's going to make the kingdom of God less and less a priority. You will lose sight of the target. Right? It's really a great picture. It's really a great picture. The, the cows or the oxen would, would pull the... I don't even know what that thing's called. The plow, I guess. Huh? They would pull the plow... And, it, you know, it would dig the rocks, and they had to make sure they were looking forward and following the oxen. They had the things strapped over their shoulders. And if they're looking this way and they're plowing this way, how straight do you think that furrow is going to be? Not very straight. In other words, the point here is that if your concerns are divided, you're not going to be effective in either camp. There are no divided hearts in the kingdom. Discipleship cannot be double-minded. Either face forward and do your plowing or face the kingdom and no regrets. So imagine, if you will, don't do this when you leave church today, but imagine, if you will, driving in your car like this. 
I know some of you drive that way already. I've seen you. You're risking danger. You're, you're assuming a great amount of danger because you're not focused on the task at hand. You're distracted. So I want to make some application here. You know, the loss of fame, the loss of fortune, the loss of family, they seem like fairly reasonable, legitimate excuses, don't they? Yet the, they're flimsy in the sense that, as I said, they don't really hold water compared to the call of Christ. The call of Christ is high. The cost is high. It's all or nothing. And this is, this is really what we call a greater to the lesser argument here, right? If these three fairly significant excuses are invalid, then what about every other excuse you can think of that's less than those? They're all equally invalid. That's the point. You, you, don't, you don't have any excuses. What, what flimsy excuse are you going to tell Jesus as to why you didn't follow him? What flimsy excuse is going to prevent you from making the most important decision of your life to follow after Christ? Christ wants nothing less than full devotion. And I'll tell you what lies behind these three excuses. I'll tell you what lies behind them is fear. It's fear. Right? Fear of losing our reputation. We want to be well thought of. So our fame goes right down the toilet. Fear of losing our wealth. Fear of losing our family relationships. It's fear. It's fear that motivates that. Is that what it is? Is it fear that prevents you from following Christ? Is it, are you worried about being alienated from your family? Is that what it is? I mean, I don't want to be all alone. I don't want to be all alone in life, right? I don't want to live by myself. I mean, is it insecurity? Is there some sin that you're involved in that, is, that you're thinking is beyond the grace of God? Is there some sin? Is it pride? Is it pride? I just want to do my own thing. I don't want to be told what to do. See, none of these, none of these are valid excuses. They're all invalid. They're all invalid. You know, I understand fear. If anybody understands fear, it's me. I used to live with panic attacks all the time. I lived with them for years. I understand fear. I also understand that that's probably why it took me five years to apply to seminary. I prayed about it. I prayed about it. I prayed about it. But the reality was I was a chicken. I dodged every English class in high school that I possibly could. I had no ability or facility with language at all. And for me to go to the master's seminary was risking public humiliation, embarrassment, failing out, 
what about my job? What about my family? How am I going to make it all work? I could have given a million excuses for not doing it. I had a million excuses. But it's called analysis paralysis. I had overanalyzed. I had waited too long. See, Jesus, his response, it just cuts right to the heart for so many of us, doesn't it? It just, right here. I mean, the heart of the issue is the issue of the heart, isn't it? At our core, we're comfort lovers. We're comfort lovers. So having, you know, having comfort taken away from us as martyrs seems fairly nice. We can live with that. It sounds noble. But giving up the comfort voluntarily, that's a whole other ballgame. Are you you telling me i got to give up my comfort? Uh, I don't think so. The reason I'm thinking this way is because even sin's grip on our life, right? Why does sin have such a grip on our lives? Because it, it hits us in our affections. It's, it's in our comfort zone. We love our sin. It makes us feel good for a time, and so we keep going back to it. And the reason we can't give up this sin is because the only way to get rid of it would be to be uncomfortable. To deal with the uncomfortableness of doing righteousness instead of continuing to participate in the sin. Right? It's our affections. So what excuses do we have? So is this, is this going to be another year where no change comes in life? Are we just going to look back and we're going to say no change? Same thing. Is it, is it going to be another year of living in the pit, just struggling with sin day to day, never really growing in Christ? You know, for others, you might gain some, some sort of measure of external conformity, but the heart, the heart never changes. The affections never change. Jerry Bridges says this, and I, I think it's helpful. He says, we can build God-like character only upon the foundation of a wholehearted devotion to God. God must be the very focal point of our lives if we wish to have godly character and conduct. Too many of us focus on the outward structure of character and conduct without taking the time to build the inward foundation of devotion to God. This often results in a cold morality or legalism, or even worse, self-righteousness and spiritual pride. Godly character flows out of devotion to God and practically confirms the reality of that devotion. That's a word for us this morning, beloved. There are no half-Christians. There's no such thing as a half-Christian. It's full devotion or not at all. See, it's one thing to be saved and to show up here as a casual disciple on Sundays. To be sort of tangentially attached to the body of Christ, right? However, in light of what Jesus is offering, which is eternal life, Jesus demands a greater commitment than anybody has ever demanded before. Uh, 
It has to be all or nothing. So, what will you give up to follow after Christ? Will you give up the creature comforts of this life? Mindful of our team going to India. India is not a great, comfortable place. You know what I'm saying? Will you give up being well thought of and will you give up the praises of men? Will you live and die in obscurity for the, na- for the sake of the name? Or will you come up with new and better excuses this next year for not following after Christ? Remember I've told you a kamikaze pilot who flies 50 missions is involved, but he's not committed. A guy who buys a total gym and doesn't use it is involved, but he's not committed. Right? A disciple who only follows Christ until it gets uncomfortable is involved, but he's not committed. No more excuses. We don't have any excuses. And let me just put it to you this way. If you're waiting for an engraved invitation, you already got one in Christ. You got one in his body. It was engraved with nails, remember? What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Let's pray. Our Father, I pray for us here this morning, this would not be another year of excuses. Father, that we would not look back over the past year and regret our dedication to the Lord Jesus Christ that we would not look forward to this year that stretches before us and make a series of excuses as to why we cannot commit to more full devotion to Christ. Father, we know that self-reformation is not going to do it. We know that cleaning ourselves up on the outside is not going to do it. Our Father, we need a heart change. We need our devotion to change. We need our affections to be toward Christ. We need Your Spirit to move in our hearts that we might more fully embrace Christ and follow Him in obedience. Father, we pray that You would work in us not only this morning and throughout this week, but that we would be effective disciples of Christ even through this holiday season, through the end of the year. Father, that we would be witnesses for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen.